0: Well, good morning. Uh, This morning has already enriched my soul so much. Uh, We began with Angela reading from Psalm 118, and there's connections from that psalm that are quoted in the passage of Scripture in the New Testament that we'll be looking at here in just a minute. Um, This morning, I have a message that's entitled, Are You a Living Stone or Dead Meat?, and it's a little graphic on the last part in particular. And the first part of the, of the imagery is maybe a little bit difficult to envision. So I wanted to just briefly touch on why I picked that imagery for you. But this message is a message to convey the best way to live life from start to finish. And so um, we, we have to understand that uh, life apart from God does not end well. Thus the dead meat analogy. Um, The analogy for dead meat is pretty simple. You probably came to church this morning and passed one or two or more deer that didn't quite cross the road in time. And so you kind of understand the idea there. The living stones can be a little bit more difficult for our brains to identify with because stones in our mind uh, are not alive. Uh, They don't do anything. They're heavy. They're solid. Uh, Typically, they're used for substrate. You know, things that are foundational uh, just for structures, like you're, you're right now on top of concrete, which is a bunch of stones that were initially crushed, the lime, and then it was mixed with stones that were not crushed, and it resolidified, solidified and thus we have concrete. So there's a lot of things that we can understand about stone being solid, and that's in the imagery, but we're alive. So if God is going to compare us to living stones, as he does in this passage of Scripture we're going to look at in 1 Peter chapter 2, then we need to understand that we're we're something solid, we're something substantive, immovable, and that's a that's something that God gives to us because we are very much not like that on our own, correct, but then we're alive, and the living part of it has to do with the interconnectedness of the body of Christ you know we've already seen that on display this morning, you know we've watched people come forward and we had others gather around to pray that's that's living stones I mean that's bringing that's bringing God's truth and God's presence in us in the life of another coming alongside of them. It's also the inter- interconnectedness between us and God himself. God is alive and he has spoken and he has given us life and so living stones, this vibrant relationship with God is what's in view. So how do we go about living this life that God calls us into? Well, what I want to do is read for you the text, and then we're going to go through it like a Bible study, and we're going to engage it together. We're going to see what what each of the verses are saying, and we're going to bring some application out of it um, and move through some other passages of Scripture that support this as well. And so what I would like to do is have us turn in our Bibles, if you have them this morning, to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 4 and read through verse 12. It says, And coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers... They may, on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, as we uh, take this pause in our lives to gather together on a Sunday morning to worship you, we in part worship you through surrendering ourselves to what your word has to say. And I pray, Father, that you would lead us into the truth of your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would make the connections for us, help us to see how this applies to our life as we have come here, we've taken the time, we've made this a priority. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be glorified and magnified for the amazing work that you have done to lead us out of darkness into your marvelous light. I pray this, that you would guide me as I share these thoughts, the truth of your word in Jesus' name. So the starting point this morning, uh, the starting point for our life, the starting point for all things comes from the first few verses that I just read. Uh, we're going to see this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. We observe that we are to come to Jesus. That's how it starts, coming to him. Jesus is referenced as a living stone, but we're coming to him. And then Jesus, the living stone, we know it was rejected by men. Interesting. Rejected by men, and then we see what God thinks of Jesus. So, there were people who rejected Christ, but there was something more significant to Jesus than the acceptance of men. It was what the Father thought. And we noticed here that God saw Jesus as choice and precious. So, I want to say that life starts, first point, when we come to Jesus, that's when life begins. We all have that responsibility before our Creator to choose life in Christ, or to reject Christ, as many have before, and as happened in the day that Christ visited us when he came in the flesh, which we're soon to celebrate at Christmas. Life starts when we come to Jesus. We have a personal responsibility to God in this. And so I would like to reference Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, where it says. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus afforded us salvation through the work that he accomplished on the cross. And when he died on that cross, he bore the penalty for our sin. And then he was buried after he died, And on that third day, he rose victorious over our sin and over death, and he gives us his life. So we have this responsibility to choose him. And so that's how life begins, is by choosing Christ. The invitation is open to you right now. You're going to see by the end of the message that now is the time for salvation. Now is the time to make that choice. Um, Glorify God now in your life. One day, all people are going to give glory to God. We're going to see but it's not going to end well for all people at that point. And uh, I want it to end well for you. So put your faith in Jesus. And then realize that what God values, the next point I want to draw from this verse, is what God values and what the world values are not the same thing. So God sent his only begotten son into this world, God in the flesh, and many rejected him. That's Amazing to consider that that happened, but it's what happens. And you, if you're honest with your own heart, struggle with belief in God as people did back in the day that Christ visited. Uh, And so, what I want us to see is that uh, what God values is different than what the world values. And God valued the Son very much. God. represented himself in jesus so jesus would say if you've seen me you've seen the father so you got a good glimpse of who god was when you glimpsed jesus and that's important for us so we see jesus we behold jesus and many rejected him because of a lot of reasons which we're going to get into in greater detail in just a minute but i want us to understand that if we're going to live life in a way that pleases god we're going to live life the way jesus lived his life before his heavenly father And so there's three things that he did well and things that would behoove us to do also. And so I'll say to live to please God means that we choose to think biblically regarding all things. So if we're going to live to please God, we're going to have to be students of his word. We're going to have to want to know what his word has to say from beginning to end, Old Testament, New Testament, the whole of scripture. We're going to have to spend time digesting it, internalizing it, thinking through it. It has to become a part of us. We also have to understand that to live to please God means that we turn to and seek out God for the answers to our questions. God the Holy Spirit is described to us as the one, the person of the Godhead who will lead us into all truth. So if we have questions, if we have things that are going on in life that bewilder us, where to go, what to do, how do we respond to this, how do we respond to that, We've just gone through a very difficult season in our nation's history and still in the midst of it. How do we respond? How do we deal with all these different things? It's important for us to go to God for the answers to those things in prayer. Prayer is essential. And thirdly, to live to please God means honoring him in our choices regardless of what others think of us. So that was Christ's example there. Jesus lived to please his father, and that was all that mattered, and any other expectations were secondary to that. He would decline secondary invitations all the time. He did what the father told him to do, and that was enough for him. And that needs to be enough for us as well. Here's the admonition to this end from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. It says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Notice in there it says to please him in all respects. That's the key thought. We have um, opportunities afforded us all the time to get involved, and um, the church is one among those places. Um, what, if, what if Pastor Joel came to you and specifically asked you to do something, but you, knowing what was expected of you from God at that season in your life, had to decline to please God, but you knew that it may not look so good in the eyes of Pastor Joel or others that are asking of you within the church? perhaps you've been in that situation before. We are always put into a position where there's this conundrum, where we know what God wants of us because it's clear, and there's the expectations of others that aren't so clearly acquainted with God's expectation of us or aren't so clearly acquainted of the place or season in life that we find ourselves in at any particular time. And we have to make a decision at those moments not to please men but to please God. And certain personalities among us struggle with this more than others. Some it's easy. Well, no, no thank you or whatever. No big deal. They don't even think twice about it. And there's others among us that that's the hardest struggle. Like they're, just, they're asked and they just want to say yes with everything in them because they just want to say yes. They like to please. They like to do whatever is expected of them. They like the, whatever that is uh, you know, to, be, to be well thought of by others. I know this is something that I've struggled with in my past, it's something that others around me, family members that I've been around struggled with, and it's a very difficult place to be if our first priority is to live to please God, because we always need to be surrendering to His will and be free to say no, to decline the invitations. Um, When I first started uh, working at the job I'm at right now, um, I got acquainted with another believer who Um, invited me to do all sorts of things with him. I didn't realize how much of an inviter he was until I got to know him more and more. At first, it was, let's meet before work and we'll have Bible study together. Super, let's do it. We did that. And then out of our relationship grew all these other requests. Are you free tomorrow to meet up with so-and-so? Are you free to do this over here? Can you help me with this project, that project? It was endless. Every time I saw him, I knew there was going to be a request. And I loved this guy. And He's super free to do lots of things. He doesn't have any kids. And, and his wife is like him. They're both very similar people. They're just very free to do stuff and be involved in everything. High energy people. I didn't have that amount of freedom. And so I had to have this conversation with him where I said, listen, you've heard me say no an awful lot. And I feel bad saying no, but in order for me to do what God has called me to do with family and church and other priorities in my life, just get used to no's. And if I ever say yes, just you know, smile, because that'll be a very lucky day for you. Because it's not going to happen very often. And and you know, he's accepted that. He's actually told other people about that. He thinks that's great. He actually thought that was wonderful, which is testament to where he's at in his walk with the Lord. But I just want us to understand how things need to be in our relationship with God. We need to be first priority doing what he calls us to do and accept the rejection by men if that comes our way. It has to be part of life at some point. We'll see that very clearly. So here's just some synopsis points about this verse. Jesus was rejected by men and you follow Jesus. Do you expect that you will get to avoid the same rejection? So, you know, don't don't live life thinking that if you play the game correctly, nobody's going to reject you. It's an impossibility. Next, the nature of our identity in Christ is revealed when we obey God, when others don't get it, don't like it, or don't want it. So if you really want to know if you're Christ's and you belong to him and he is your Lord and you are submitted to him correctly, then you're going to be willing to identify with him And you will notice these trends. Some people aren't going to get it. Some people aren't going to want it. And some people won't like it one little bit. Um, Another point, at some point, allegiance to God will result in rejection by others and attacks by Satan. Satan hates God. He hates God's people. He hates you. He hates all people because people were created in the image of God. So he's always at work against God the purposes and the intent of God in your life. So expect attacks. It's interesting how that works. Uh, And then this last little point on this verse is, to continue to follow God with joy despite rejection is a proof in my spirit that I belong to Christ and that my identity is resting in what he thinks of me. So that's key. So when you face the rejection of men and you know in your spirit, well, it's because really they're rejecting Christ in me, then there you go you know that your identity is correctly rooted and founded in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. That's a beautiful place to find yourself. Let's look at verse five. 1 Peter 2.5 says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A lot in this verse, you'll see that believers are, are living stones. That's what we're compared to. We're like living stones, just like Jesus was compared to that. We're being built up into a spiritual house. The spiritual house is the holy priesthood. We're going to talk about that a little bit. The purpose of living stones is to offer up spiritual sacrifices. The sacrifices are acceptable to God on the basis of Jesus Christ's ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. So these are the things we're going to flesh out. So a point. Because Jesus is acceptable to God, we as his own are made acceptable to God. So it's our relationship to Jesus that makes us right before God. There's this beautiful transaction that takes place at the moment of our salvation. So Jesus went to the cross, not because he owed any debt to God for anything. No, Jesus being God was completely sinless, but he became sin on our behalf. So he took upon himself our debt of sin and he paid for it in full he did that so that he could impart to us freedom from sin and freedom from ultimate death. Death means separation. So you are to hear me use the word death a lot. Think separation when you hear death. Death. So we're, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We're separated from God in our sins and our trespasses. But Jesus gives us life. He makes a way for us to enjoy a relationship with him through the work that he did. So we are made acceptable to God through Jesus So as Jesus is accepted by God, so we are accepted by God through our relationship with Jesus. So that's that's an important piece to understand. Then Romans 12.1 becomes possible for us. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Jesus makes us holy calls us to holiness, and then gives us the power to live a holy life. And holy means set apart. So all of this setting apart to God is made possible because of what Jesus has done for us. So you are a holy priesthood. That's what this passage also talks about. The priesthood of all believers is what's referenced here. You cannot enter the throne room of God at any time unless you are made A priest who is in a right relationship with God. And that's what happened through the great high priest Jesus, giving to us the ability to have access to him at any time through our faith in him. This is the ministry of prayer. So, many times this morning already has been referenced the importance of prayer, the work of prayer, corporate prayer, individual prayer. The ability for us as a church to pray, think about this, only happens because of what God did for us through Jesus making us clean so that we could go into his presence, holy and blameless. God sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ when you pray. So he sees you as perfect. He sees you as complete in his son. And that's what gives us access to him when we pray. It's a beautiful thing. Verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 2 says, For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So here's a verse that quotes Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, and it parallels Romans 10, 11. Uh, God sends Jesus to be the choice and precious cornerstone, and if we believe in Jesus, we will not be disappointed. And so the point from this that I want us to th- think about is that how we choose to build our lives matters. A strong foundation matters, and our point of reference matters. So we've thought of Jesus before, no doubt, as the foundation of the church. We're built on Jesus. He is also referenced as the cornerstone. So maybe you've never built anything before, but every building has to have a point of reference you're going to at some point have to take measurements from property lines, measurements somewhere or other so that you can set your structure that you're building in the correct location. Um, A number of years ago, I built a workshop. And in order for the workshop to meet code, I had to measure from the property line to one of the corners of my building and then get the whole building because I wanted it built not square to the property line but a little bit uh, crooked to the property line. I needed to find the the point of the building that was closest to where I could build legally and then go out from there. So I had to mark the corner and then extract out from there the rest of where the structure was going to land. Jesus is the cornerstone. Cornerstones were a reference stone in architecture when the builders used stonework. There had to be that first place. And then this wall would go that way, this wall would go that way, and it would go up from there, and it would rest on the foundation. And so Jesus is the reference point for our life, and we need to see and understand that correctly. Luke 6, 46 to 49. Um, uh, uh, This is a passage that you probably sang songs about when you were younger. If you work in children's ministry, there's songs written about this. Let's read the text, and you'll see why this becomes an important one for us to consider. Jesus said, "'Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say?' Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rocks. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against the house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who has heard and not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great. You see the importance of the right foundation and the right point of reference for building our life. It needs to be Christ. Um, I admire architecture. I like to build things. And so anytime I'm in a structure that you can see how it was built, I'm always fascinated to look at that. Um, when there's buildings that are constructed with a timber frame, It's fun to see how they join those pieces together the old way. The new way is they take metal brackets and they bolt all the pieces together. But the old way was mortise and tenon and specialty joints. If you see a a building that's constructed that way, you'll know that it is when you don't see all the metal brackets holding it together. You'll see wooden pins. You'll see angled pieces cut that interlock. You'll see all kinds of interesting architecture. All of that is is something that I have an eye to observe. And when I see that, I don't admire the joinery of the constructed building for its own sake. I go, wow, whoever put this together was brilliant. That's what I think. I think about the architect, or I think about the engineers. I think about the builders who had the ability to take this idea and bring it to life. That's what I think of. And that's what we're being invited to also consider. So we are being built and fashioned and joined together as a a church by Christ, who's our reference point, and we need to build correctly in this life, or the outcome will be disastrous for all. So what kind of house are you building? Are you building on sinking sand or upon the firm rock of our salvation? That's the question for you to consider. Moving on to chapter, I'm sorry, verses 7 and 8 of 1 Peter 2. It says, This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. So this precious and valuable gift of Jesus that will not disappoint is only for those who believe. So we see that first off. And then for those who disbelieve, we see that Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We have to understand that not everyone admires the work of Christ in the world. There's a lot of of interesting things to understand about this. So we live as a culture right now on a foundation of Judeo-Christian values brought into the structure of our government, brought into the way that we do things in this nation, the laws and the way they were written and the reasons they were written, the freedoms you have, the basis for those freedoms, all of this was structured on a foundation of understanding who we were before a living God and what would be the best way to arrange ourselves under his authority and interact with people in a society. And that's how our nation came about. It's very interesting. It's fascinating. It's one of a kind, really. And so with this being that foundation and that work, it's like you can look at our nation's architecture if you want to, and you can see that that was the case. Or you can be like most people in this country today who really enjoy living on that foundation, but are now rejecting the architect completely and outright, and the consequences are going to be very, very painful for any who do that. Because we cannot change the reality of who we are and who he is. And this is a structure that is immovable. God will not change. His moral code, his, his, uh, what he values will not ever change. People were changeable. And that's the dilemma, right? So we can have a lot of things put in place that our founding fathers would hope to not see undone. But as they get undone, you're going to begin to see the erosion of, of, of the foundations and all of the things that were held together so well by God's grace. And so it's an interesting thing. Not everyone admires the work of God in the world. That's an important thing. I mean, I think it's an obvious point, but it's important to realize that. Because if we're going to live rightly before God, then we're going to have to expect there's going to be some pushback from other people. This, uh, this pushback was right from the beginning. and so I want to read for you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and we're going to start in verse 18 and read to verse 25. And since I'm going to read from my Bible and not my notes, on with the glasses. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but is to but to us who are being saved. it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And that is the dilemma that we face even today. There was a rejection by both the Jews and the Greeks of Jesus, the Greeks, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish element, at the in the day of Christ because the cross was 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 a huge problem for both groups for different reasons. The Jews were expecting that their Messiah would come. They were expecting that, but that he would come triumphant. And so they totally stumbled over this this act of humility of their Messiah, supposedly going to a cross and dying. That's humiliating. That's not appearing to be triumphant, although we can understand it to be very different now the gentiles so anybody who is non-jewish looked at the cross as being a shameful most humiliating way to die and that sure, certainly anybody who gets put on a cross must have deserved it it was it was the way that the romans uh Took, took those that offended their laws to the greatest punishment possible, was to be put on a cross. And so they, they tripped up over it in that way. They stumbled over Christ in, the other, in another sense. The Greeks, they looked at, a lot of the Greeks anyway, were really influenced by the idea that the physical world was evil and only the spiritual was good. So if you have God becoming incarnate, well, that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever because how can God become human flesh That would be taking on some form of evil. And so they were tripped up over things in that regard. There's all kinds of reasons that people today trip up over God. Uh, we've, We've constructed all kinds of systems so that we can replace, say, for example, God created us with, well, we just evolved over a long period of time. And so we have all these constructs that have now been presented as plausible Um, in the eyes of many, who want to not align themselves with God. They want another system that they can align themselves under and try to build on a different structure. And that's what we see trying to take place today. So I'll say this. Those who seek to reduce, or let me say it, I misread. Those who seek to redefine truth are offended by truth because truth refuses to alter itself regardless of how much we protest. When we rail against truth, we discover that truth is immovable. Truth will not remain silent. Truth hits back hard. Truth eventually requires that we pay our respects. So I had to read what I wrote because I couldn't just extemporaneously say all of that. But it is really, really true about truth, all these things. Just think about that. You can't hope to do things differently than God says to do them, and expect a good outcome, something that's going to lead to life, when God has already said, well, if you do that, it leads to death. Now, we like to trick ourselves all the time. I mean, we're we're all prone, and we're going to get into this as well. We're all prone to go our own way and to try it other than the way that God says to do it. But if we're honest, it's always led to separation, always led to our spirit getting crushed and outcomes that are not favorable on, on many different levels. So I can say this, we reject God's word to our peril. Is that not true? So if you reject it, if, you, if you're if you just going to live it like, like it doesn't matter, you're going to do that to your own peril. And I, I remember many times at the supper table with my father, um, and he would bring to light something in one of us three kids that needed to you know, we were being prideful about it. Let's just say it like that. We didn't want to admit we were wrong on something. And he'd say, okay, okay, no problem. Well, you just do that somewhere else and see what happens. Like when you get out on your own, when you're at somebody else's table, when you're in, in a different environment, and you see if that goes, goes well for you. In other words, the point is that he didn't have to convince us there. I mean, get away with it here, fine, but eventually it's going to hurt Someone else that you care about, or it's going to hurt you deeply, those attitudes, those actions. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. John Bunyan uh, is reported to have written in the cover of his Bible, either this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And I had heard, uh, I went to Moody Bible Institute years ago, and D.L. Moody was, would often use that statement in his preaching. He just preached real simple truisms, and he would make that statement many times over. You know, he'd hold up his Bible, either this book, will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And there's a reason for that. When we're living in sin, we want to live in sin, we know that this will bring conviction, it will shed light. And when we, when we don't want the light to shine, well, we can't spend any time in the light, and so thus the dilemma. So you can reject Jesus, but that will not prevent you from one day meeting up with him, and on that day, any constructs erected against God Will crumble You can reject Jesus, but that will not prevent you from one day meeting up with Him, and on that day, any constructs erected against God will crumble. Philippians 2:10 through11 says, "So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Those who are disobedient to God's word will face consequences for that disobedience. And the greatest consequence to the disobedience of God's word is that they will stumble over Jesus and they will fall, as it were, into hell for all eternity. It's a big consequence. And so that's why the message is entitled, Are You a Living Stone or Are You Dead Meat? Because it's really true. You're either going to live forever in a right relationship with God or you're going to live forever not live, you're going to be dead spiritually forever apart from God. You'll be resurrected to an eternal judgment. So do not be disappointed is what I want to say. This passage says that you will not be disappointed if you put your hope in Christ, but there will be great disappointment for those who do not. Trust in Jesus. So we move on in the text. Let me get to a second big point. Bullet point, living a life possessed by God. How do we do that and what does that look like? This is from 1 Peter 1 2 9 through 10. So, chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, here we notice that believers are a royal priesthood. They are a holy nation. They are set apart to God. They are a people for God's own possession. They are called out of darkness so that we can proclaim the excellencies of God. And that imagery is beautiful. So, I will say this. We have a reason to highly esteem God as supremely worthy of our praise because God called us out of darkness into his marvelous light by making us joint heirs of the King of Kings to live in his courts in the kingdom of his forever and ever. That is amazing to consider. We're a chosen race. That's interesting verbiage. Um, It's an interesting time with our nation with regard to tensions. We call them racial tensions. Tensions among people for different reasons. Um, Maybe where they live. Maybe based on the color of their skin. Maybe based on a culture. Maybe based on a past heritage. But these tensions have kind of been resurrected to a degree that I didn't think would have to happen or would happen in our nation's history, and it has, and here it is, and we're dealing with it for all different numbers of reasons. And all I want to say to that is that's what we get when we're left to our own devices, tensions. I mean, we would have them amongst ourselves without Christ. If we just, the group gathered here, were all confined to a common purpose Without God working in our hearts, we wouldn't get along with each other very well at all. We would have our own opinions, our own thoughts, our own ideas. We would group ourselves out based on preferences of one of one nature or another. And that's the way people are. That's our tendency. We like to gather with like-mindedness. And when we find it, that's the natural thing for us to do. The interesting thing is that God uses the term... He describes that we are going to become one, one group, one nation. It's an amazing thing to consider. Um, A chosen race is the terminology that he uses. In the Old Testament, you see that God uses Abraham to, he says to Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to make you a people, and you're going to bless all the nations of the world. And he did that, and he has done that. But initially, you saw that God visited his favor upon the group of people known as the Hebrew people. And that nation of Israel was blessed by God when they followed him, and then they fell into captivity when they disobeyed him. He had a very unique covenant relationship with his people. But the culmination of that covenant relationship was going to be the coming of their Messiah, Jesus, who would then bring together all people. And that's what Jesus did, and that's what this passage is referencing. It's the fact that we're all in the same predicament, and we all need a Savior, and God loved us all so very much that he sent his Son, and Jesus became the propitiation for our sin, the one who exchanged himself for us on the cross and made us one. So now we have a common reference point. We all now have this common ability to be able to honestly appraise our life, and recognize that we fell short and we all needed the grace of God. And so the foot of the cross is level ground. It truly is level ground. Nobody is in any higher position than anybody else. Nobody in the past has ever been in a higher position than anybody else. We all get to God through Jesus. That's it. And that we all need him. Doesn't matter our preferences. Doesn't matter our heritage. Doesn't matter where we grew up, where we were born doesn't matter our occupation, doesn't matter our status, rich, poor, famous, infamous, we all need the same saving grace. And that's the beauty of the gospel, and that's what we proclaim. That's what this passage is proclaiming. Wow. So we also uh, can see that God folds this all these people together. We read in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Because we are all children of Adam, we are all sinners. And we all needed the new Adam, Jesus to save us from our sin. And then we all get brought together from among all the peoples of the, of the earth now and from before us and however long after us before Christ brings the culmination of the age about. We'll all be brought together into his kingdom and he will be our Lord. That's a beautiful thing. Colossians 1.13 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Wow, that's it. Very concise, perfectly stated. Love that passage. All right, and then we get to uh, verse 10 of uh, 1 Peter 2. It says, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Basically, this is saying we were lost and we have been found. We were lost and now found. This whole mess of a world of broken down people needed Redemption. At a specific point in history, God won our freedom from sin through Jesus and made this motley crew of believers into one people who bear his name. Is that not true? I mean, that's true from my perspective, for sure. And if we don't think that's true, then we really haven't honestly evaluated the condition of our own heart, truly. Because that's, the, that's, the, that's where it all starts for all of us. We were lost, and now we have been found. I'm going to have you turn if you're flipping through your Bible to the book of Ephesians. and I'm going to read through three different sections of uh, that book together with you, which highlights some of these thoughts really well. First is from Ephesians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. And then 19 through 22, it says So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus or Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building. Being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And then chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift, Therefore, it says, well, I'll stop there. It was given one body, one spirit, one faith, one hope, one calling. We're all brought together into the household of faith by a common Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, third point from this text in 1 Peter, we are aliens just for now, aliens in this world just for now, but we're all his forever. So, the struggle is for now, and then for all eternity, we're going to be blessed to be in his presence, beholding him face to face in a glorified body, free from this body which is, has been corrupted by sin and which is capable of continuing to sin. We will be completely free from all of that struggle, and our faith will become sight and we will behold him. That's coming. But for now, we're aliens and strangers in this world, it's a difficult place to dwell. And so verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So we notice we don't belong in this world any longer, that we need to abstain from fleshly lusts, and we understand that the flesh is at war with our soul. So, you know, we we often move into things like instant gratification. We, we like to... Um, Self-pity is maybe one of the most common things I, I encounter in myself and in others, in our children. You know, the things don't go right. They, they move into self-pity. Self-pity moves them into wanting to satiate the pain in some way. And so they excuse it. Well, this happened, so I'm going to do this. It's kind of the way the path goes with self-pity. That's the flesh waging war against our soul. Because what our soul needs is to be fed from our great shepherd, our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. What we need is to turn to God. What we need is to give God the glory and the honor for what he's done in our life and let him continue the work that he began. That's what we really need, but we struggle, and there's a war, and it's real. And when we're honest as Christians within the church, we'll be able to talk about that struggle, and we can pray for each other, and we can encourage one another. That's a very important thing. So to win the war against the fleshly lusts, we need good offensive and defensive strategies. And a good friend of mine uh, will always say, and especially in reference to the spiritual battles that we face as men, that's the context that he would say this, is the best defense is a strong offense. So doing what God calls us to do is the best defense against the things that we need to abstain from. So Here's the best offensive measure I could come up with. But offensive strategy is abide in Christ. Be ever mindful of God's word and remain built together with the other living stones. In other words, you can't do it alone. Um, I've always encountered within the church, interesting phenomenon that people try to do it alone. Now they might come to church, but they still try to do it alone. They're not honest with their struggles with other people or They leave the local church, and they try to do it all on their own completely. Both are going to lead you vulnerable. They'll leave you very vulnerable. So what's the best defensive strategies? Well, they're the very same thing. Abide in Christ. Be ever mindful of God's word, and remain built together with the other living stones. So men, you need to be in an honest relationship with other men. Our struggles, there's unique struggles for us as men, and they're common to us all. And if we're not having those honest conversations with other men, then we're leaving ourselves very vulnerable because we need someone to look us in the eye and to ask us how we're doing in those struggles. And we need to be able to be truthful in response and let them hold us accountable, pray for us, because it's life-giving when we do that for one another. What kills us is when we pretend or we just don't want to talk about those things. That is not a good place. And families, it can be said the same. You know, as a father, I have wanted to be vulnerable about my own struggles with my children. When my children struggle, I want them to be able to come to me and not see someone who says, I can't believe you did that. I want to be able to say, oh, yes, son, that's the struggle I have the very same way. I've failed in that same category of sin. And it leads to these consequences. And let's together, let's... Let's go back to the source of our strength, the Lord Jesus. And we can pray for each other. We need to be able to do that. We need to have that kind of vulnerability in our lives. Super important. And women, you need to be involved with other women in the same way. Older women with the younger women. These are very specific admonitions given in Scripture, and we need to be fulfilling them, or we leave ourselves very, very vulnerable. This uh, this last week, I had the privilege of getting reacquainted with Uh, a family member, an extended family member, and I discovered things that I didn't know about his story. But as he shared his story with me, it was a story of pain, like 30 years of intense pain, of his addictions, of his struggles with alcoholism, drugs of every kind, his struggles with uh, the wrong kind of relationship with women, all the way through, and he described a life of pain. Now, he grew up in the church, and there was a time, he said, when he went back to the church to try to find help. And all he met was a group of people that couldn't relate to him in all of his struggles. And so he left the church again. And as we shared and talked, he eventually came to the point where he said, Nathan, what I want you to do is I want you to pray for me to see whether or not God wants me to go back to church or not. I was like, oh my goodness. So if you, I said, if you haven't found a church where you can go and you can share that struggle and be surrounded with hugs and people saying, oh, I would be there too, or I was there then you're at the wrong church because that's a church of people that are not truly understanding their place before God as fallen and in need of a Savior and fully acquainted with what that would be like without Christ. So that's an interesting thing, right? I hope nobody could come to our church and share those things and, and get some kind of look of like a blank stare or, can't believe that's your struggle. It, it, it needs. It needs to be a place where it would be. Oh, I'm struggling too. It's different, maybe, but I get it. And we're in this whole thing together. So the last verse. Keep your behavior excellent among the among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So. <clears throat> there's a lot of things in this. The, ES, the ESV says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, like the expectation is they will speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. The day of visitation is the final judgment. That's what's being referenced here. So what I find interesting is, I'm going to try to summarize all these thoughts quickly, is that People around us who are not following Christ will speak evil against us. Okay, that's, that's stated it's going to happen. So expect that. The other thing that's interesting about this verse is it, it points out that there will come a day, the day of their judgment, when they'll stand before God, they'll give God glory for the good work that the people of God had done around them during the time of their life on this earth. Wow. So they're going to give glory to God on that day. So, a final point here is that on the day of your final reckoning with Jesus, may those who once reviled you for following Jesus find the words to express to Jesus all the good your life brought about in their presence in their otherwise dark world of existence. Isn't that an interesting thing to consider? They're watching. I've had situations before where People that once told me, like, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want anything to do with your God. They get on their deathbed, and their wife will call me. They'll find me somewhere else in this country, and they'll say, I want you to come back and talk to him because now he wants to hear. It's interesting. Didn't want to, now wants to. So, in conclusion, we have to find our identity rooted in Christ, and it will transform everything about our lives. We will begin a relationship with God by coming to Jesus. He is the chief cornerstone, the reference point, and we will build our life upon him. He is the rock of our salvation. And then we will then most glorify God through the sacrifice of our life and surrendered service to him. Do his will. That is the best possible life, the best trajectory for life. And at the end of life, when we stand before Jesus, may he not only, may he not be ashamed of you in that day, because you were not ashamed of him today.